You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello my lovely Patrixers. It is I, Kate Lister. You're here. I'm here. We're all here. But before we can go any further together, I think you know what's coming your way. Take a seat. Here is your fair dues warning. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things in an adulty way, about a range of adult subjects, and you should be an adult too. And now if you hang around and you get offended, well, tough tits, I don't know what to tell you, because fair dues, we did warn you. It is a mild spring day in the year 481 AD. And we're here at the Church of St. Stephen's for the marriage of Guinevere and Arthur Pendragon, King of all England. Now, my memory of the day's events are a little bit hazy betwixters. That could be the copious amounts of mead that I've been quaffing, though as medieval parties are something else, you know. So I will refer to Alfred Lord Tennyson's rather Victorian account of that day. In his poem, Idols of the King, which tells of the rise and the fall of King Arthur, Tennyson describes a wedding where the son of May descends on their king. It was actually believed that marrying in May brought bad luck, which does not bode well for this marriage. Garlands of flowers were everywhere throughout the ceremony, which was officiated by the wizard Merlin, no less. Whilst it's a joyous occasion and a crowning moment for the newly established Camelot, the love is not going to last. Oh, no. A love triangle between Guinevere, Arthur, and Arthur's bestest mate and his bestest knight, Lancelot, arises. And there are supposed infidelities on both sides. So this marriage is just not going to go the distance. But hey, let's not put a dampener on things and we'll just sit back and enjoy the day, though, eh? Merlin, show us a trick. What do you look for, man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing a button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. King Arthur's story is one of the great legends of British history. His rise to king of all England, the battles that he fights alongside his knights of the round table, the quest for the holy grail, sword in the stone, all of that stuff, you know it well. But behind the medieval mythology of it all, behind Merlin the magician and the lady of the lake who was supposed to have given Arthur his beloved Excalibur, there was some pretty dodgy, sexy shenanigans going on, at least in the early to mid-medieval versions of that story. Hmm. King Arthur was not quite so innocent himself. Today, I am joined by a fabulous friend of the show and the host of the history hit podcast Gone Medieval, Eleanor Yanniger, to separate the man from the myth. I am ready to do this if you are betwixters. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets. It's the one, the only, it's Eleanor Yanniger. How are you doing? Kate, 
I am always good when I see your beautiful <laughs> shining face. What can I say? What can I say? I'm so thrilled that you're back. Honestly, you are one of our most, I think you are our most popular guest. No shade to anybody else. But Stop. Yeah, it's true. Stop. Oh. It's true. People are loving what you are serving on this podcast, miss. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to have you back. And King Arthur, that's what we're talking about today. What an interesting, strange little subject he is, right? It's part of British history, but also it's a bit of French history, a bit of German, mm-hmm. there's some Italian in there. The Welsh would want a shout out, as would the Irish as well. It's this melting pot of mm. different stories, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. So there's a kind of um, a term that medieval people use when they talk about what we now call like Arthuriana. Although, you know, mm. maybe Arthuriana is still happening. Like if, if you write something about King Arthur now, then it's like... It's added to the canon, right? That's still Arthuriana. But they have this way of talking about it where they call it like the material of the English, right? Where they say like, this is kind of like the literary thing to write about if you're going to write about England. And there's kind of like two schools of thought with that because when British people, so like when Welsh people or English people, you know, kind of write about Arthur, they often write about him as though this is history, Right. Mm. So you have guys like your boy, Jeffrey of Monmouth, who writes histories. Right. So it it would be like me or you saying, "Okay, well, here we go. I'm doing a history of the British. And then he's like, and then King Arthur, you know, right. And and he's like, King Arthur's a guy. He's a definite real guy. And Mm. here's like the things about him. And they kind of write that into the story of Britain. And so his thing is he sort of positions Arthur as having been alive, sort of this time after the Romans have left Britain, but before like the Saxons come over from the continent. And it's in that kind of slice of time that he places Arthur, right? Now, Welsh people had been writing about Arthur for centuries before this. But when you look at like the really early uh, kind of Welsh material, it's like campfire stories. And it's often like little rhymes, I often say, kind of like, because they're like poems and things. And they'll be, it's really funny. It's like a super early hip hop where like they'll, they will like introduce (laughs) varying nights of the round table. And it's like, my name is Arthur and I'm here to say I like killing boars in a serious way. And then like, you know, they'll be like, (laughs) and next on the mic is Sir Kay. And then like, it's just kind of like, that's how they introduce everyone. And, and like all of the adventures, like they involve so many boar, like, Yes. I hope you enjoy boar hunting. Yeah, boar hunting is a big thing in this particular legend. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you kind of get to sort of high medieval period. And then French people are like, girl, I'm about to write about King Arthur and make it sexy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Mm -hmm. this becomes sort of like the romance tradition and the kind of courtly love tradition. And so that's when kind of not to put too fine a point on it, but you and I as sex historians start going, oh, now I'm interested. Although, having said that, there's some weird sex stuff that comes up even in the histories where you're like, really? Okay. Yes. You know, so rather a lot of Merlin, like, disguising Arthur's dad as somebody else so he can go, like, bang that somebody else's wife. That's a fucking weird origin story, that one. I mean, the thing Mm. about the Arthurian legends, like you're alluding to there, is that there isn't really one authoritative this is the original it's Mm -hmm. a hodgepodge of so many different people telling the story but at some point it gets decidedly weird arthur's origin story and i'm not sure if that's is it french or, or where this one comes from but you tell me the story of how arthur was conceived because it's fucking yeah so you got your boy merlin And Merlin Mm. is kind of a wholesale invention by Geoffrey of Monmouth, right? So Geoffrey of Monmouth is kind of the one who comes up with Merlin. And like, you know, he writes a series of prophecies about Merlin. And he's sort of the one who comes up with the story. And so you've got Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon. Mm. And Uther Pendragon is at war with a neighboring king. And he also has the hots for said king's wife. And so Merlin is like, all right, buddy, you know, the thing that we're going to do is I'm going to magic you. So he puts a glamour on Uther Pendragon so that he looks like his enemy, the other king. And then he goes and sleeps with that guy's wife. The one he really fancies. Igraine. The one he really fancies. And, you know, to me... Like, I would classify this in non-consensual territory, but they're kind of like, you know, romance. And you're like, mm-hmm. 
Right. And that's how Arthur's conceived. Right. So Arthur is basically like it, it's a, it's like a cuckold job, you know, to use an old term. Mm. What year is this that Jeffrey is coming up with this story about Arthur's conception? Because what I really like about the Arthurian myth is it doesn't matter which one you're looking at. It doesn't matter how old it is. They all place it in a time a long, long time ago. Yeah. Even when you're reading a text that is from a long, long fucking time ago, it's still going, it was really long before this. Oh, yeah. And that's what's really, really interesting is because like Jeffrey of Monmouth, so he's kind of writing in the late 11th century, 12th century, like early 12th century, right? That's when he's doing all of this. So, you know, when we think about Arthur now, we kind of go, oh, yeah, well, these are medieval people. But they're like, well, they kind Mm. of place, I suppose, Arthur in the early medieval period. So they are sort of like this is not even what some people quite incorrectly would call the Dark Ages because Rome hasn't collapsed yet. Rome still exists, but it's retreated from Britain, which is also cast as a good thing. They're like, Rome ought not be here because Arthur should be ruling, right? So it's kind of like this time when you have the contraction of the Roman Empire, but it still exists. So late antiquity in general, if that makes sense. Okay. It's people in what we would call the high medieval period writing about people in late antiquity. So kind of like 500 years ago, something like that. Yeah. It's always like once removed from whoever's writing it, right? Mm -hmm. It's just in this kind of mythical once upon a time type of area okay so jeff of monmouth 11th century very early writing Mm. histories with a lot of creative license involved that would be fair like the bits that he wasn't quite sure about he just went i'm gonna write make this up he was the one that came up with this weird story about arthur's conception which is basically it's rape isn't it like there's no other way of kind of dressing that up one to have merlin make uther look like this woman's husband so she has sex with him But there's a lot of weird birth conceptions in the Arthurian myth. Yeah, like eventually Merlin gets his own weird conception as well. So like eventually Merlin gets his origin story, which is like a demon goes and has sex with a princess. It's kind of like a incubi story. And there's kind of like a, a shadowy group of demons. They're essentially making Merlin a type of antichrist is the idea where they're like, well, we're, we're going to go um, and we're going to put like a half demon out in the world and then he'll do all kinds of like terrible things. But because uh, Merlin's mom is like a nice lady, she then like names Merlin after her grandfather. And by virtue of naming him after her grandfather, it's like this dispels the power of the demons. And then Merlin just becomes like a magic guy. And this does a couple of things. Like it explains how Merlin can be magic, but it also is kind of, you know, a Christian story about the power of nurture versus nature, but it's another weird conception, right? Where you're like, seems strange, right? And, you know, a lot of the conceptions are all kind of crisscrossed up. You know, you have Arthur having sex with the mothers of various members of the round table. You have various members of the round table having sex with like, uh, as we'll get to, you have like Lancelot has sex with Guinevere. Sometimes, depending on who you ask, Guinevere is having sex with like Arthur's sons. You know, it's a mess. The entire thing is um, incredibly, you know, like in high school when everyone would just kind of like make out with each other's friends because it's like, you know, like six people and you just kind of like trade off. I thought you could say like, remember in high school when a wizard turned you into the likeness of someone you were waging war on and then you was going to go, fuck, Eleanor, what school did you go to? Yeah, well, you know, it's wild out here in America. What can I say? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So what's kind of interesting about the Arthur conception story is all kinds of weird, but then it gets picked up and then it's written about by other authors and other authors and it kind of becomes established as like this thing that happened until it mm. got to the 19th century and when the Victorians went, well, we can't talk about that. And they sort of stopped. Mm. But what's interesting in the story is that it's not viewed as a sexual assault. The issue that arises from it is whether or not Arthur is legitimate. Yeah, and this is the thing, right? That's quite interesting because, you know, it gets back to what I'm always bagging on about where, you know, women quite often, and especially wives, it's like, you know, they're not people, right? They're kind of property. They're not people. And so... No. 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 And so this is kind of like, you know, part of why this is acceptable because it's like, well, I'm at war, with this guy so obviously like shag and his wife is on the table right as part of it damaging his castle damaging his wife what's the difference right 
And the big question is always going to be succession, because with rich people, the thing that matters is always this question of succession and what gets passed down to who. So it's this very troubling thing and that which we often see in terms of medieval attitudes towards rape, you know, where rape is not a crime against a woman. It's a crime against another man who is seen as having charge of the woman. It's more of a property dispute than anything else. So it's like if a woman is unmarried, you damaged her father or her brother. If her father's dead, if a woman is married, you damaged her husband. You haven't damaged her. It's so difficult from a modern perspective to read it and to like make sense of it. But that's absolutely what happens in this story because Uther then marries this woman that he's basically tricked into bed and he kills her husband as well. That's like the other really shit thing. So like, it's not just a sexual assault, it's a murder as well. He marries her. She then gives birth to Arthur and kind of sobbingly confesses, oh God, I think the baby might be illegitimate. At which point he goes, no, it was me. I tricked you and now we're married. So it's fine. Ta-da! It's just like, fucking hell and you you see this a lot in like various Arthuriana stories about other knights as well where there is a super super common theme less of like the glamour and the rape and then the retrospective marriage but it's incredibly common for a knight to be out in the woods get challenged by another knight kill that knight then subsequently find the castle that knight owned and then marry the wife Wow. Like over and over again, you have within Arthuriana, basically widows marrying the murderers of their husbands. And like that's treated as a completely normal way of doing things. And like it's almost like a fait accompli. Like if you murder a guy, then yeah, you get his wife, obviously. Right. As like a trophy prize. It's like how you get his horse or, or his armor. It's like an AI and his wife in his castle. Like, off you go. Oh, man. The number of, like, of the women who are kind of like, yeah, well, I guess, sure. What are you and I mean, do? like, I guess that, <laughs> to a certain extent, I'm like, I guess that these men are all trash. So you're kind of like, I don't know, one or the other, fine. But, like, you know, what can I say? Like, you know, I don't have a whole lot of nice no. things to say about a lot of these guys. Let's just put it that way. Which is kind of funny because... When you talk about the King Arthur myth, it's very much presented as, oh, God, King Arthur, Camelot, the best of the best, the most noble, the most chivalrous, when knights were out charging and damsels needed rescuing. But when you actually unpick the origin stories of this stuff, it is some serious Jerry Springer shit that is going on. (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, part of that whole, oh, it's, you know, blah, 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 chivalry and all that, you know, that's Victorian's. You know, it's Victorians being like, oh, we're going to rewrite this because, you know, medieval people, there's no such thing as a code of chivalry, right? It's like chivalry is kind of like, yeah, well, you need to be nice to other guys who have horses. Yeah. Right. Like that's where the chevalier comes from. And, and, you know, it's like and also, I don't know, there's some women in there. Maybe shag them if you kill their husbands. I don't know. Like, you know, so it's for medieval people. It's not the same as it's not the same understanding of the way that things were. And and indeed, their idea of romance is really different. Like, yeah, you do have marriage within this. And occasionally you see marriages of people who are in love, like Eric and Anid get married and they're very Very much in love. love. uh, But hilariously, the entire plot line of that is like, fellas, is it gay to love your wife, essentially, where where it's like he gets married and loves his wife and is like at home and everyone's like, what are you, some kind of wuss? ditch your wife and like go on a quest and everyone is like stop loving your wife and like go to the forest like that's yeah you know i remember that yeah one. yeah and everyone else like for the most part you don't necessarily marry people that you're in love like sometimes some of the more minor characters do but you know it's courtly love right when we say courtly love it's reflecting the conditions of court life so you know you get married because it makes good business sense And there are, you know, important contracts to be made and you fall in love with the hot guys who are hanging around. You know, it's not about love when you get married. And that's what Arthuriana from the medieval period reflects. I'm always trying to explain this to the students is that that I teach the medieval literature to courtly love, not courtly love. That's something very different. Courtly love. Mm. It's not fancying somebody. It's not even necessarily being in love with somebody. It's chivalric conventions of a knight must have a lady love. That thing that Shrek rips off where they're like, oh, I dropped this knight and you accept my favor. And she drops the handkerchief. All of that shit's courtly love, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's a performance. 
to a certain extent. Right. Having someone to say, oh, I'll wear your favor at the joust. Yeah. You know, okay, do they shag? Yeah. <laughs> you think, like, for your money, like, that's the handkerchief is, a, is foreplay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but not all of them do. So it, it's one of these things where we, it's a very difficult to know. How much of this is just kind of like, oh, we're playing a weird ritualized game involving handkerchiefs and how much of it is like, and also sometimes we shag, right? You know, because obviously no one is like had a big affair with the guy I gave my handkerchief to. Like no one's going to write that down, right? But we know the conditions are such that it wouldn't be unusual. But having said that, this is where Arthuriana is interesting because it sort of functions in that troubled place where you have all of these affairs and sometimes it's like oh isn't that romantic like especially with Guinevere and Lancelot everyone accepts that's terribly romantic terribly romantic but at the same time it contributes to the downfall of Camelot so there's always the thing about how it is terribly romantic to be in love with someone outside of your marriage but there's that warning like probably you shouldn't shag which is basically code for do hand jobs um, <laughs> because they, it's sort of like, well, uh, have the kinds of sex where you're not going to like trouble the lineage. Right. right? Yeah. You're not going to like bring into question whether or not anyone's heir is legitimate. Don't get knocked up. Mm hmm. Which is great advice, actually. Very so. sensible <laughs> advice. But speaking of bizarre conceptions, so Arthur's own conception is frankly fucking weird, mm. but... One of the things that is often downplayed, especially when, you know, we're talking about Disney and kids versions of this myth, is that Arthur has a son of his own. He has a couple, but mm. Mordred. Tell me about mm. his son Mordred and how Mordred was brought about. So Mordred is born as a result of a brief affair between Arthur and Morgos. Mm -hmm. And Morgos is the wife of King Lot of Orkney. And so this is a really interesting story from the standpoint of courtly love, because King Lot of Orkney and Arthur are friends. They're homies. And also uh, Morgos is the mum of Sir Gawain. So she's Dev Patel's mum. All right. Like, God bless her. Thanks for that. And Arthur's half sister. Yes. But he doesn't I'm know that. Uh, but I think we should lead with that, Eleanor. Like, I think that that's quite a... <laughs> but he doesn't know that because his dad knocked his bum up in the guise of... So, so anyway, she is his half-sister because she's the daughter of Egrain and the Duke of Tintagel, who's kind of like the legitimate guy. The guy that, like, Arthur's dad was pretending to be. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. When Uther Pendragon knocks... Arthur's mom up, he's pretending to be this guy. And she's like, they're half brother and sister, right? But he doesn't know this. He doesn't know this. Oh, well. Then. And um, <laughs> in one of the tellings, and so this is uh, Thomas Mallory's version, the Le Mort d'Arthur, which is kind of like 15th century. And it's the one that like people, like real heads are very much into Le Mort d'Arthur, right? And what he writes about this is, you know, Arthur comes to court. He's just hanging out and he sees Morgos. And she comes in with all of her ladies and says that she's richly beseen with her four sons, Gawain, Gaharis, Agravin, and Gareth, and lots of knights and ladies. And he's like, ooh, hot lady with a big entourage and four sons. I love it. And apparently, quote, the king cast great love unto her and desired to lie by here. Now, Morgos seems to kind of be like, uh, like, whatever. But like, does she know? She doesn't know. She didn't know. Right. Okay. <laughs> so she doesn't know. And like, weirdly, everyone is all like, come on, sleep with Arthur. And her husband's like, two thumbs up. Like, you know, it's like, it's some kind of like swinging scene or something like that, where it's like, Whoa. yeah, come on, everybody. It's a feast. Time to shag Arthur, like married lady. And she's like, well, I guess like whatever. And everyone's pretty chill about it. Like it is not presented in the Mort Arthur as a problem other than the fact that they are half brother and half sister. It's like the fact that she's married to King Law is like neither here nor there, like whatever. So they kind of have a one night stand at this feast as is traditional, I guess. As you do, right? As you do. Then Morgos is knocked up and she gives birth to their son, Mordred, right? So for those counting, that means that Mordred is both his son and his nephew. Normal. Nasty. Very normal. No. But it also means that, like, Merlin is like, I thought I told you not to, like, knock your half-sister up. And he's like, what? Oops. And so there is this <laughs> prophecy that this is the person who's going to bring down Catalog. Catalog? He's going to bring Catalog. down Camelot. <laughs> yeah. 
so so Mordred's gonna bring down Camelot, right? And so Arthur's like, uh-oh, knocked my half-sister up and have this bastard oh, son. No. So he has like this really messed up plan, which is, is like, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to round up all the children that were born on May Day because the prophecy is also like he's going to be born on May Day that any lords and ladies had. And he then puts all these little kids out on a boat and puts the boat out to sea and the ship sinks. And all of the babies who are about like four weeks old or less die except Mordred. And everyone's like, well, there you go. So it's this whole story is kind of part of the why you have to understand that Camelot falls because it's like it's not just the knocking your half sister up, which is, of course, bad. But it's like probably all the infanticide that maybe Arthur deserves to lose his kingdom because, you know, so glossed over that little bit nine babies die right that's like some proper herod shit yeah it is right and anyone else you know you would be all like this man is a villain right he's like going around shagging his friends wives who are his half sisters and then he kills other people's babies about it doesn't seem like terribly not cool kind no so that's how you get Mordred. The problem isn't the shagging your friend's wife the problem is shagging your half sister and then killing everyone's baby about it. Very, very messed up. And Disney missed that one out of the sword in the stone. <laughs> you'd think that Arthur would have learned his lesson from, you know, accidentally shagging mm. your half-sister and then begetting the child that will doom the kingdom as you know it. But he has other affairs. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, he also um, shags at one point in time a woman named uh, Lenore's. Leonor's, mm. I think, L-I-O-N-O-R-S, uh, which I think is probably one of the early forms of Eleanor, which is fine. Great. Nice. Um, and she's hot. That's what we know about her. Again, like Mallory describes her as a passing fair damsel. And she is the daughter of an earl named Sanam. And he basically has some big battle. She gets sent to do homage to him kind of as a representative of her father and they basically look at each other, their eyes bug out of their heads and turn into hearts. Right. Mallory says about that is King Arthur set his love greatly on her and so did she upon him. And so the king had a do with her. Wow, a do. A do. Fuck. Uh-huh. Ah. Is he the king at this point or is this so in his wild oats? Yeah, no, he's the king. Yeah. Fuck, man. Yep. Right. I know, right? Okay. But this is treated as completely fine and above board. And everyone is like, oh, yeah. Um, and she gets knocked up. And everyone is like, oh, yeah, King Arthur's bastard son, whatever. That's fine. And she gives birth to a son called Boar. And he becomes a knight of the round table. That's the whole story where it's there isn't a message to this one or, you know, Not any really. kind of lesson to be learned. It's just like, I don't know, sometimes King Arthur knocks chicks up. But at least with this, as opposed to Morgos, like Morgos is like really indifferent and kind of gets peer pressured into shagging Arthur. At least with this one, like Lenore's is kind of like, oh yeah, like I'm about that life. Mm-hmm. Let's get down to it. So like, at least, you know, you have like one lady who's really into it and no one really gets on her for giving birth to a son out of wedlock. And King Arthur treats Boar very well and hey ho so it's kind of like a happy ending story and and I guess like maybe it's just sort of like introducing the possibilities of life if you're the king right I'll be back with Eleanor and Arthur after this short break Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm thrilled to say that today's episode of Betwixt the Sheets is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses with us and I'm no exception. It can be a whole range of things that weigh on us big and small, such as, can I justify these elaborate impulse purchases? How do I tell my friend that, no, they really shouldn't have cut that fringe? And of course, the evergreen classic, why are we all here? Bottling these things up can really take its toll, which is why therapy is fantastic for getting them off your chest and working through them with an expert. Even if it's just to tell your mate that their hair doesn't look its best. If you're thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is built to be convenient to you, being entirely online and flexible to suit your schedule. Simply fill out a questionnaire to be matched with a therapist and you can change at any time with no additional cost. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash betwixt to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash betwixt. So we've got a king who's kind of philandering in the medieval versions of this myth, but no one seems to mind too much. Let's talk about the introduction of Guinevere because Mm. her relationship with Lancelot tends to be the one that everybody focuses on. But Guinevere wasn't always part of the Arthurian myth. She was not a, a later addition, but she certainly wasn't one of the original cast. Yeah, no, not at all. The original cast is basically like it's a dude's rock kind of moment. It's it's like here's Arthur and his boys. Sometimes they shag chicks. Fantastic. And Guinevere kind mm. of like comes into that. And Guinevere is sort of um, introduced as like a bit of a prize to be won. Like everyone agrees she's a big old babe. And his marriage to Guinevere is sort of like establishes him as king when he eventually consolidates all of England under his power. Okay. And again, like, you know, we, we have Mallory um, in the Lamorts Arthur kind of write about this. And she is the son of a guy called King Lodegerance, which is a bit of a nice. mouthful, but fine. And Arthur is like, well, this is a person to marry for reasons of esteem. It's not necessarily like a romance. It's like this is right. sort of the done thing. So he sends Merlin off to go do marriage arrangements for him, which is kind of standard. That's what you would expect to see from a king at the time. And so then King Lodegarance accepts and like Guinevere gets kind of sent back down. And in Mallory's version, he also sends as her dowry, the round table. Wow. And a hundred nights along. So it's like, you know, establishing why you kind of do this marriage is that there is a real kind of bevy of knights that come along with it. And it's sort of establishing that this is a consolidation of military power. Not everyone agrees with Mallory on this one. You know, oftentimes the round table is set up before Guinevere ever came along. But hey ho, right? So then, you know, you kind of have like a bit of a, a marriage. And in the medieval ones, it's kind of like not very interesting right like they get married in the church of st stephen's which is funny that's about it right and so like hey ho you've got like you've got a diplomatic marriage standard king stuff right it's not until you get to surprise surprise the victorian period that this gets played up as a bit more of a romance like as though they are actually kind of in love and we have all of these things like so tennyson writes his own piece of etheriana called the ideals of the king and he's like, they had a big wedding. Like, ooh, Arthur wears all white to the wedding, which is quite funny, which is like a symbol of his purity. And I'm like, yeah, sure, bro. Definitely doesn't have like several bastard children <laughs> running around. Uh-huh, cool. He doesn't in Tennyson, though, because Tennyson ex- deletes all of that. He got Mallory's mm-hmm. text and he just went, um, no, delete, 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 delete. Nope. Like, none, nobody is shagging anyone that they shouldn't be apart from Guinevere, who he is awful to he is such a twat to her yeah and like it's interesting because he uses all this weird kind of like a uh, victorian symbolism around their wedding where like so for example they get married in may and like victorians are like no no one gets married mm. in june 
one doesn't get married in May. And so you're supposed to understand this means that like, oh, this is going to cause like bad luck or whatever, oh, wow. you know, which question mark? Okay, Victorians, sure. And then there's like a big wedding. He talks all about the flowers that they bring, like and, and the, like the big bouquet that she has. And so this is quite interesting because you start to see like in Tennyson, like that's the stuff that people kind of grasp onto mm. right now. And they're like, oh, romance and all of these things. Right. But for medieval people, it's like, this is a business contract that was conducted. They get married for very good reasons, according to medieval people, but it's not about love, which opens you up to the love triangle. Enter Lancelot. Lancelot and Guinevere. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's sexy. Oh, he's French. Oh, la la. Of course he is. That's a very French sounding name. Mm-hmm. He just sort of... He saunters in yeah. Chrétien de Troyes, who first That's wrote right. about Lancelot. Yes. So, of course, he's French. But tell us about Lancelot. Who is Lancelot? And why is he the bestest of the best? Well, he's the bestest of the best because uh, Chrétien de Troyes says so. Like, within Arthuriana too, you have, like, whoever's the best knight changes. So, like, with the Welsh ones, it's K. And then it becomes Gawain for a while. And then it changes to Lancelot. And so Lancelot is essentially like sexy Superman. Mm. And Quentin de Troyes introduces him in this very uh, great piece of Arthuriana, which is called The Knight of the Cart. And basically, the story goes like this. There's an evil knight from far away, of course. And he says, Arthur, you should send your best knight out for a joust. And if, you know, whoever fights him wins, then he gets Guinevere. But if he loses, then he's got all these hostages that he'll send back to Camelot. So basically, Kay, who by this time becomes a bad guy. So he was originally the best knight, but Kay eventually becomes like a guy that everybody hates later on. He loses the joust. Guinevere gets taken off. And then Gawain is like, okay, well, I'm going to like go out and rescue him. Um, And he gets joined in this by an anonymous knight. And he's like, this new anonymous knight is like, oh my gosh, we gotta get Guinevere, guys, 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 we gotta, gotta go get Guinevere. And it's like, who are you? And it becomes clear that it's Sir Lancelot. And it's called the Knight of the Cart because there's a scene then when he's like, he's riding his horse so hard to go find Guinevere that his horse dies. And then he comes upon an evil dwarf. There's a lot of them. Yeah, there's a lot of them in Arthuriana. Loads and loads in Arthuriana. And so he's like, basically, he's got this cart and he's like, I'll take you to Guinevere, but you got to get on the cart. And now you got to understand that like being on a cart is bad because in the first place, if you're a knight, you're on your own horse. Right. But also being in a cart might indicate that you're a criminal who's being taken somewhere. Ah. But it certainly means that you're common and it maybe means you're a criminal. Yeah. And so Lancelot's willingness to debase himself is like, oh, that's quite sexy, right? He's willing to do anything for Guinevere, who he possibly doesn't even know. Then, like, Lancelot gets taken to a crossroads, and it's like, both of these roads will lead to Guinevere, but one takes a much longer time, and the other one, you have to go over the sword bridge, which, you know, is bad. And Lancelot is like, no, I'll go over the sword bridge, which is like, it's like a big sword, you know, and you get all cut up. And da, da, da. But anyway, like, you know, many adventures ensue. There's a big battle. Like, Guinevere finally gets back to court. Lancelot kind of, like, goes back to court. He kills everybody and, like, whatever, right? This then, like, leads to the fact that Guinevere and Lancelot shag about it. And they do that quite a lot, don't they? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they do seem to be quite in love. Yeah. And this is that they are presented as very much in love in all of these things where it kind of goes. And for a while, they try to resist in, in a lot of the versions where they're like, we probably shouldn't shag. But then it's sort of like Arthur goes out of town and they're like, what can I do? You know, you're kind of a deal. And it's an interesting one because there is that tension, right, where they are presented as being deeply in love. You know, Lancelot's willingness to put himself through all kinds of stress for her is a big deal. But then sometimes it gets portrayed as kind of a bad thing. So later on, when you start getting the grail quests, it'll become a thing where Lancelot can't find the grail because he's shagging Guinevere. And it is a sin. Even if it's romantic, it's a sin, right? You might need to explain that because that sounded a little bit 
like he was too busy shagging Guinevere to bother trying to find <laughs> the Grail. But yeah, that's okay. not good. <laughs> Very good point. So it's like um, we have the these things. There's the Grail cycle and the post Grail cycle, which come out after. Um, you gotta understand that these guys are just making new Arthurian. It's like Spider Man movies, right? Yeah. They're like yeah. if one yeah. one bit gets made and they're like, okay, time for a new one, and then they retell them over and over again. So then you get this thing introduced kind of later on, which is called the Grail cycle, and around that you have a cluster of the fact that everyone starts to go look for the holy grail uh, the holy grail at this point in time it isn't even decided that it's like the cup from the last supper or anything like that it's something magic that kind of like grants you eternal life and it's holy eventually it becomes the cup but in order to find it you've got to be incredibly holy and pure and so they introduce a new cast of good knights so again like now lancelot then becomes not the best knight and the new best knight is percival who is a loser virgin and like he's never shagged so like eventually he's able to find the grail because he's pure and you can't tempt him with sexy ladies and he eventually ascends bodily into heaven and he then becomes the best knight. And so there's a tension that's introduced in that between Percival, who is the ideal Christian, who doesn't shag around and who's kind of focused on doing this holy thing, and Lancelot, who is a great knight. Everyone agrees that he's very, very talented, but he doesn't have the moral fortitude to not shag Guinevere, right? So you do have this introduction of the fact like, oh, and it's probably bad, but everyone agrees that... Lancelot and Guinevere are in love one way or another and what happens to them how does this story play out because it really depends who you're talking to and in what time like it basically maps onto the same ending for pretty much everyone but depending on who's telling it is the the angle being taken but Lancelot and Guinevere don't like it all comes it all goes to shit doesn't it like it all comes crashing down they don't get a happy ending yeah because it turns out you shouldn't shag your boss's wife no. like it basically is what it comes down to and you know depending on what version you have people are meaner to guinevere in various ways so mallory again in the mortar arthur it's like very very kind of specific about how their affair basically leads to the downfall of camelot it's not just mordred and everything uh so basically in that mordred and another one of the knights know that Guinevere and Lancelot are, well, they, they know Guinevere is shagging somebody, right? Okay. And they kind of like come up with a plan to catch like Lancelot shagging Guinevere. Mm. And Lancelot kind of like fights his way out of Guinevere's chambers after they like find them having shagged and runs away from court. And so as a part of this, he kills 11 people two of whom are Gwen's brothers. Well, that's not good. Which isn't great. That's not good. Yeah. And Gwen and, like, Arthur are basically forced to avenge this, right? And so they go pursue Lancelot and, like, his buddies while they're away. And in that absence, Mordred betrays his dad and takes over the kingdom. So that means then that Arthur is forced to come back to take Camelot again, Gawain gets killed in battle with Mordred's men and then like Merlin's big prophecy that Mordred is going to kill Arthur comes into play. Gawain's ghost comes back from the dead and is like, call a truce. Like, you know, it's, it's blockbuster stuff. And then eventually war breaks out. Mordred is killed, but King Arthur is fatally wounded. And Guinevere goes and joins a nunnery. Of course she does. Of course she does. Yeah. Man. So what happens to Lancelot? Where does he go? Away, just away. No nunnery equivalent for him. Yeah, it's it's like uh, the equivalent for him. I guess it's like it's shameful. Okay, right? Like shouldn't have killed all those people. You started a war. Sometimes he gets killed. Often he's just like basically a, a cast out. So okay. he is shunned. Mm. Is the deal? But uh, you know, Guinevere, by virtue of being the woman, is more at fault because duh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like. Tennyson yeah. is vicious with Guinevere. Yeah. His final yeah. scene is her groveling on a convent floor with King Arthur shouting at her, telling her that I was ever a virgin safe for thee, I think is, is what he says, which is absolute horseshit because Tennyson should have read those legends. But Mallory, the medieval versions, they give her a bit of wiggle room. If I remember correctly, Mallory says... I can't remember the exact phrase, but he pretty much signs it off as like, well, whatever you can say about her, she was a true lover. 
and that's so like it's mm. kind of like but at least she loved well he gives her that like yeah. she's in a nunnery presumably going like oh this is kind of shit i didn't want it to end up like this but he gives her that little bit of like well she was a good lover anyway because you know there is this kind of like understanding within the medieval context like well what's she supposed to do Right. Like if you fall in love with people, what are you supposed to do? Just like completely ignore that forever. Mm. So medieval people are a little more understanding. I mean, granted, at least the downfall of Camelot and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, but I don't know. Lancelot was quite sexy, though. Yeah. You know, like kind of a deal. That's sort of fair enough. Right. As far as they're concerned. Yeah. It's so fascinating to look into the origin of these myths because it has become so sanitized since the Victorians got their hands on it and it's become the stuff of like children's stories and it's endlessly being retold but when you actually look into it the sexuality and the the behavior of the early medieval stories of this myth are so fucked up but would they have been viewed as that within the context of the time do you think or was this just something that they were just happy this stuff happened uh, yeah i mean i, th- I think with all of this, a lot of times what we are being presented with is kind of like a worst case scenario when things goes wrong. And there are a lot of tragedies. Like, so for example, um, in the Arthuriana universe, like, you know, Tristan and Isolde, that is a tragedy where it's like she's married to someone else. He marries like another Isolde and doesn't love her as much. Like everybody dies. It's very sad. For the most part, there aren't really happy endings about love except for eric and anid like we get that one right but everything else is sort of like yeah in this world uh love is a problem right which is i think a fair reflection of what life at court really is you know very few people are in a marriage or that they are in because of a romantic reason you love and sex are always going to be incredibly fraught within that so it is a reflection of a particularized milieu that we can kind of understand. They don't think that some of the things that we think are incredibly messed up are messed up. Like they, they don't see a problem with disguising yourself as someone else and shagging someone else's wife. Like it's kind of like- That's just jolly japes. That's mm -hmm. just very clever. Yeah. That's basically how it's played. It's like, whoa, ho, ho, ho. Like, he got the better of him, where you're like, all right, bro. You like, sneaky thing, you old dog. You know, and they don't think it's messed up. Like, oh, what, oh, what are you, what's he like? You know, kind of deal. They, they don't think it's a problem to kill some lady's husband and then marry her. They're like, yeah, all in a day's work. You know, like, all of that is fine. But even that, they also have this real kind of sensibility that's like a a little bit different between sex and love, where, you know, like King Arthur has all these one night stands and everyone is like, yay, one night stand. okay, whatever. And and like, it's not a big romance. Guinevere and Lancelot, that's a big romance. Tristan and Isolde, that's a big romance. Mm. And they're usually tragic. So if you're genuinely in love as a true lover, it's probably going to end badly for you. And that's because uh, they don't really have a whole lot of options. You know, they've got they've got like tons of privilege and no freedom. That's kind of the deal. Final question on the sex life of King Arthur and all his courtiers. Do you think that because like it's endlessly retold this story, it's um, movies and TV shows and books and it's endlessly being retold. Do you think that we are due a retelling of the King Arthur myth with all of the nasty sex stuff left in. I would love it. You know, like, I, I think that we're ready for it now. I think, I think we ready. are, because I, I think that we're at a point where we can, like, deal with complex mm. characters. Like, if we've learned anything from kind of, like, the era of blockbuster television that we're living through, we can deal with flawed characters now. Yes. We can understand that there's moral ambiguity and that weird things happen. So I think that we could deal with it more. We don't need knights to be mm. unblemished, perfect superheroes like the Victorians do. We can be like, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know about stuff, basically. So I think, you know, it would be a quite interesting thing to see, like to see a like a really well done version of Arthuriana that puts these stories out there kind of warts and all. And it's like, well, what are you going to do with that? And talks about. The moral quandaries of like, yeah, and what happens when then you kill a bunch of babies, like, because you messed up. These are interesting questions, right? And it's interesting to kind of like think about what that means for humanity. So Arthuriana, I think, often reflects the needs and desires of whoever is writing it. But perhaps we are at a place where we can be a bit more historically accurate about things because our society is able to 
do that and values that now, whereas Victorians didn't quite so much. Elder, you have been amazing to talk to, as you always, always are. And I'd like to think that we have seriously upset a few people's childhood remembrances of the sword in the stone <laughs> and, and visited the Camelot theme park, which definitely didn't have an incest roller coaster on there anywhere. But if people <laughs> want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? Oh, you know, you can find me also on uh, the History Hit Network over at my podcast, uh, Gone Medieval. My episodes are out every Tuesday. Amazing. Oftentimes I'm blogging um, about nonsense like this at going-medieval.com. And also if you want to like consider a little bit more about uh, weird sex lives and what it means for women, you can check out my book, uh, The Once and Future Sex, available wherever fine books are sold. Thank you so much. You have been fabulous. You know, I'm only trying to live up to your example, Kate. <laughs> thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Elder for joining me. I always have so much fun talking to her. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you'd like us to explore a subject or maybe you just fancy dropping by to say hello, you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We have got episodes on everything from Sexy Santa to the women of the Haitian Revolution all coming your way. This podcast was edited by Tom DeLaghi and produced by Stuart Beckwith. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.